So this evening I'd like to explore our understanding or what we understand about wise effort. And I'm going to say this just to tease John and Akinchino, also to explore our understanding of effortlessness. You'll see eyes roll at this moment. If you speak to any artist, a painter, a musician, a dancer, they will most likely tell you that their very best work is born of the moments when they learn to get out of the way. There's a piece by Mildred Chase who wrote, Just being at the piano, egoless, is to reach the place where the only thing that exists is the sound and the moving toward the sound. The music on the page that was outside of you is now within you and moves through you. You are a channel for the music and play from the center of your being. Everything that you have consciously learned, all of your knowledge, emanates from within you. There's a sense of oneness in which the heart of the musician and the heart of the composer meet, in which there's no room for self-conscious thought. You are at one with yourself and the act and feel as if playing as if playing has already happened and you're effortlessly releasing it. The music is in your hands, in the air, in the room. The music is everywhere, and the whole universe is contained in the experience of playing. It is when the idea of being the painter, the dancer, the musician falls away and there is just playing or just dancing or just uh, painting. And yet also if you spoke to any of these people, they are very likely to acknowledge that they were not born so accomplished, that in diapers their fingers did not begin to play across the keyboards. Instead, they will speak of the years of effort, of playing, singing a single note, playing a chord 10,000 times, learning the medium and the skill of their art. It's said that after Michelangelo finished painting the Sistine Chapel, that an admirer came to him and said, you know, this is so amazing. It, it is such a miracle. And he said, if you knew how much effort this took, <laughs> you wouldn't think it was such a miracle. <laughs> but there's something about discovering the sense of freedom and ease born of the dropping away of self-consciousness. Now, this is something not confined to the world of the arts, whether you're parenting a child or planting a garden, at work, playing, meditation. Self-consciousness brings into our world an experience of separation, often of judgment, often of contractedness and comparing, that really distracts our capacity to be wholehearted and in very many ways 
subdues a sense of joy and authenticity. Now, I think we sometimes have a glimpse or see this very clearly in our practice. Are there any moments when you simply forget you're the breather and the breath just breathes itself? Are there any moments when you simply forget that you are the walking walker and that there is just walking and you are totally present? In that moment, there's a kind of a sense of what it's like for the meditator to be unseated and for the present moment simply to unfold in a sense of lightness, of spaciousness, of calmness, of awareness. Yet at the same time, we all know just how much effort has been made for us to be here, how much effort it takes to be awake and attentive, how many moments we've been asked to make the effort to to let go, to collect our attention once more from the realms of fantasies and narratives, the stories we tell about the past and the future and our present moment preoccupations. We know, I'm sure all of us by this time point in the retreat, just how much effort it takes to keep showing up when there are so many voices that tell us there are better things for us to do in this moment. But we may also experience the effects of being too embedded in the role of the meditator, the identity of the meditator. When we try to be too much in charge, too much in control of our experience and have this sense in our practice of exaggerated responsibility, you know, that it's all up to us. Because we can see whenever we move into that kind of identity of self-consciousness, we, in that identity of the meditator, we also again once more experience ourselves moving into that world of judgment and comparison, sometimes striving and at other times just feeling helpless. Because what is happening in those moments, of course, embedded in the role of the meditator, we are bringing into our practice a very, very familiar sense of self-consciousness that can appear in so many areas of our life. It's so interesting in our practice to find this blend of agency and receptivity. To find this blend of wise effort and also, and I, I will go into this much more, my understanding of this word, bringing together this sense of effort and effortlessness. This sense of agency and receptivity both exist in this path, in this teaching. We speak about developing, cultivating a path, and we also speak about the fruition of that path. We speak about the cultivation of intention, and we also speak about the very natural embodiment of kindness, of calmness, of compassion. We practice awakening. 
We actually practice awakening moment to moment. And we see the fruits of that practicing of awakening. The Buddha once put it that there is this shore and there is the other shore and there is the raft that we use to cross between the two. Also saying there is neither this shore nor another shore. Now when we read the stories of great yogis, great practitioners, not only in this tradition but I think in all disciplines, I think when we read more carefully, we also see this ongoing inquiry into the place of effort to understand what really wise effort is. What is unwise effort? What does it mean to be able to cultivate receptivity in this practice? What is that place? And my, in my understanding, this, this investigation, this inquiry into wise effort in reality is also an investigation into what do we mean by self? What do we mean by non-self? It's a questioning of how the qualities of agency and receptivity perhaps in this practice need not to be dualistically seen, not to be separated, but to be seen as interwoven. I think this is an important inquiry, not only for our practice, but in truth for the whole of our lives. What does it mean for us to have a path where we intentionally cultivate all the precious qualities of awakening? We cultivate serenity, we cultivate equanimity, we cultivate mindfulness and clarity, we cultivate joy and balance. Yet we know very much, I hope, as the Buddha knew, that this path is never intended to transport us into some other exotic domain, territory, some other realm. But the path is always described as a returning to what is and what is possible. These two need to be so held in the same hand to see what is and to see and explore what is possible in each moment, in this body, in this mind, and in this life. I think there's many curious paradoxes in this teaching. We see that our path begins first step is learning to remember what it means to be here. That first step can go on for quite a while, by the way. Learning to remember what it means to be here just where we are, unconditionally embracing every part of ourselves, unconditionally embracing everything that arises in our bodies, in our minds, in our heart, in the world. We have that intention to be here, Yet the very word path implies a sense of purpose. It implies a sense of direction. As John mentioned last night, you know, the Buddha emphasizes over and over again and very succinctly in the statement that I teach just one thing, that there is dukkha and there is the end of the end of dukkha. And this is the path that we explore moment 
to moment, whereas the end of dukkha in this moment, not at some future time. There's a great art in this path, knowing how to hold our practice, how to hold ourselves in this path with sincerity, with commitment, and to practice almost as if our life depends on it. And yet to know at the same time that every moment that we put ourselves, put myself in the center of that purpose, we are likely to find and to create a great deal of difficulty in walking this path. We're remembering and we're also learning to remember what it means to forget ourselves. That's the paradox. Dogen, many of you will be familiar with this verse, that to study the way is to study oneself. To study oneself is to forget oneself. To forget oneself is to be awakened by all things. To be awakened by all things is to let body and mind of self and others fall away. Even the traces of awakening come to an end. And this traceless awakening is continued endlessly. My experience is that the moment that we occupy the ground of self-consciousness on this path and in this practice, we create a lot of difficulties for ourselves. We create projects, we create agendas, and we create timetables. Have you ever heard that little voice inwardly says, okay, I'll be with this for how long? Or I've already been with this. You know, do I need to be with this yet again? So easily, we can even, in placing ourselves very central, self-consciousness very central in this path, we can even reinforce a sense of self. We talk about good sittings, bad sittings. How do we define that? We talk about good meditations, bad meditations. We talk about a good self and a bad self. It's a very familiar song, isn't it? We kind of sing it in a lot of areas of our lives. Good mother, bad mother, good partner, bad partner, good friend, bad friend, good student, bad student, good colleague, bad colleague. This kind of self-referencing, this kind of self-consciousness invariably leads to the same place. It doesn't have different outcomes. It invariably leads to the same place of feeling somewhat separated, somewhat isolated, a lot of judgment, at times a lot of shame, at times that manifests in a whole lot of striving and comparing. And all of this works in a kind of closed feedback loop reinforcing a sense of self, the self that is never quite good enough, the self that never quite arrives at its goal. 
Now, in the moments when we can somewhat forget ourselves, forget this kind of centralizing, lay down this kind of self-referencing, and learn to get out of the way, I think those are the moments that we often learn to engage with a quality of effort which is in reality not separate from effortlessness. And this quality of wise effort, of course, is one of the links in the Eightfold Path. It's, 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 a, it's a teaching that's mentioned in so many different places. But in many ways, this step of the noble, ennobling Eightfold Path, it invariably holds all of the other steps. Wise action, wise intention, wise concentration. It invariably holds them all. I think understanding this weaving of wise effort and effortlessness is understanding what it means to forget ourselves, understanding what equanimity, calmness, and peace embodied in our practice actually are. And what we see is that wise effort is a mirror. It's very much a mirror. (coughs) It reflects both confusion and wisdom. Wise effort reflects both suffering and the end of suffering. We tend to be very dualistic about these two words, effort and effortlessness. We hear the stories, I'm sure you've all read the stories, about the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree, determined to be still and to sit there if need be until his blood ran cold, if that was what it took to be liberated. We hear another metaphor of the Buddha determining to sit there until he understood awakening like his hair was on fire. Milarepa, one of the great yogis of the past, there's a whole kind of long story about his teacher giving him these instructions to build these towers as part of his practice. The moment one was finished, almost finished, he'd be instructed to knock it down and then be instructed to build another one over and over and over, making great efforts, yet the teaching to hold on to nothing. We hear the stories of the yogis who walled themselves into caves for years. These are, by the way, real people. I know people who did this. (laughs) Sitting on mountaintops, shivering, sweating in jungles. The great acts of perseverance in order to be awake. Now, I would say that these stories of heroic effort do not just exist in meditative truth. Traditions. Think of the kind of effort someone like Nelson Mandala made in his life. Nelson Mandala or Aung San Suu Kyi. The kind of efforts, the kind of perseverance that they brought forward to bring about the changes that they most truly valued. And we know, we acknowledge how critical their efforts were and are. And I think part of us, I don't know about you, but part of us is often drawn, I think, to this kind of warrior spirit in the practice. This was really important to me in my early years of practice. I can't tell you how important it was, you know. And I have to confess that 
there's a latent warrior who lives within me still, you know, and, you know, sometimes pops up and I try and pat it on the head and say, you know, it's okay, you know, we're really doing it here. But it was really important to me in the early years of my practice. I, in a way, I took great pride in being able to sit with discomfort for hours and never move in these strong determination sittings, nothing was going to sway me. You know, I took a certain pride in kind of living up in the mountains with snow all around me and my flip-flops on my feet, you know, and chronic amoebic dysentery and, you know, hepatitis, but I was going to die on the cushion, you know. I would die on the cushion. Nothing was going to budge me. It was kind of like common kind of attitudes where I practiced when I was young. You know, this was kind of how you did it. You know, it wasn't really an argument. You learned to bear. You learned to tolerate, you know. And there was a sneaky bit of pride in there too, you know, a sneaky bit of kind of self-conceit. There were some benefits too. Although part of us can recognize this attraction to this sort of warrior spirit, oh, there's something deeply attractive, isn't there, about these stories of sudden awakening? (laughs) Effortless, you know, do nothing, going nowhere, and spring blooms all by itself in a a couple of... um, Stories of one is by a nun called Lin Chi. You can't seem to stop your mind from racing around everywhere seeking something. That's why the patriarch said, hopeless fellows, using their heads to look for their heads. You might right now turn your light around and shine it on yourselves, not go seeking somewhere else. Then you will understand that in body and mind you are no different than the Buddha and that there is nothing to do. Phew. (laughs) Nothing to do. Great, great news. There's another nun who said, the, the entire day I searched for spring, but spring I could not find. In my straw sandals I tromped amongst the mountain peak clouds, home again smiling. I finger a sprig of fragrant plum blossom. Spring was right here on these branches in all of its glory. I'm reoken. He's <laughs> even better. Too lazy, too lazy to be ambitious. I let the world take care of itself. Ten days' worth of rice in my bag. A bundle of twigs by the fireplace. Why chatter about delusion and enlightenment? Listening to the night pain, rain on my roof, I sit comfortably with both legs stretched out. <laughs> Isn't that great? Not surprisingly, the possibility of stumbling across awakening is really very enticing. A kind of blinding moment of unexpected and unsought-for liberation. It sounds a lot easier than the hours of practice we do here. 
yet try to practice effortlessness. Try to practice effortlessness. It's not possible. The moment that we try to do that, it perhaps becomes very clear to us that we're always practicing something. And that if we're not practicing wise effort, we might just be practicing habit. I know after, after you know, a period of warrior days myself, I did this, tried this myself, and I explored the domain of choiceless spaciness. <laughs> Sitting, doing nothing, pulled by this thought and that thought and that habit and this habit down memory lane into future terrains. And it was really kind of nice. You know, drifting along on this tide of impulse and, you know, confusion and telling myself, well, you know, all's fine. I'm just resting in awareness. (laughs) Till I noticed how much I was still suffering. (laughs) Then it occurred to me that this just resting might not be the whole path. It, it might be a great idea that, we, you know, we don't need to look for anything, but we need to bear in mind that liberation may not be looking for us. <laughs> Can we hold effort and a different understanding of effortlessness without seeing them as being separate from one another? Can we cultivate the path and yet know that the goal of this path And the fruit of this path is embedded in the path itself, not lying somewhere else. It's embedded in the path itself. Can we deeply hold a sense of aspiration without turning that aspiration into some kind of tyrant or inner judge endlessly producing standards of success and failure? Can we know what it means to be effortless within effort? And that actually may be one of the definitions of wise effort. Can we walk the path? Can we engage with this teaching without self-consciousness? One might say one of the primary purposes of meditative practice is to learn to forget the self. But then we face another paradox that to forget the self, self-consciousness, we first need to understand the idea of self. We need to understand how that is shaped, not to blame ourselves, not to try to have a better self, not to annihilate ourselves, but to understand what we mean by self and to understand its ways. Now, I want to read you a verse from the Vasudhimaga that John mentioned the other night, and being aware that this is a commentarial verse, but it's useful in the context of this talk. Suffering is, but no sufferer is found. The deeds are, but no doer of the deeds is there. The path is, but no traveler upon it is seen. Nibbana is, but not the person who enters it. I want to look at this about. What, explore what this looks like, what this verse looks like in our practice. Suffering is, but no sufferer is found. We all know the landscape of distress. At times, 
suffering. We all know the pain that the body can experience. We all know or have touched at least the landscape of loss, of loneliness, of heartache. We know this landscape personally. And we also know that this is a universal landscape. We look around us and we see that there is no one in this room who is exempt. That each person in this room will have their own measure of heartache, their own measure of loss. Each person in this room will know what it means to feel pain, to feel separation, to feel pain of body and mind. We also know that when we're embedded in the role of the sufferer, the inevitable moments of distress or pain that we will encounter in this life are compounded by the very presence of the sufferer. The sufferer arises with the identification with suffering. And the sufferer, of course, is one of the ways in which self-consciousness manifests. And what the arising of the sufferer does is that it often disables our capacity to meet pain wisely. We get so locked, the sufferer, the role of the, the identity of the sufferer gets so locked into fear, to resistance, that it really becomes very difficult for us simply to ask, what does this pain need? What kind of kindness, what kind of compassion, what kind of investigation, what kind of wise, wise action does this pain really ask for? Strangely, the identity of the sufferer, which is based on identification, both ties us to pain and at the same time it has the effect of dissociating us, separating us from pain at the same time. You can see the tie to pain, the way in which the sufferer brings, becomes the fixer, the wanter of solutions, the judge, the get rid of, the agitation of aversion, the way in which the sufferer sees a kind of eternal future in pain and carries all the memories of past pain. The sufferer, I think, can at times become heroically effortful, but it's not always wise effort because we see the way that the sufferer measures ourselves, measures themselves by the capacity to get rid of the pain, to subdue it, to fix it, to overcome it, assuming that kind of exaggerated responsibility Or sometimes the sufferer sinks into the near enemy of effortlessness, which is helplessness, a kind of passivity. Now we can feel for ourselves in our own practice when self-consciousness arises in relationship to pain because we get tight, we get contracted, we feel the very familiar songs, the very familiar stories about success and failure, about progress and regression. We pat ourselves on the back when we manage to somehow subdue pain and we chastise ourselves sometimes when pain lasts. We can get so busy 
with fixing, doing, altering, and avoiding, that we can even entirely ignore the role that the identification with suffering is having, the the role that self-consciousness is exerting. And sometimes in this practice, we're really asked to have a kind of rotation of consciousness, where instead of being entirely fixated on the object, the painful knee, the difficult emotion, we need to also look a little bit behind that and get a sense of how our sense of self or our sense of self-consciousness is actually being formed and shaped by the identification with the object. I don't think so much wise effort is born of identification. Then it becomes mostly reactive effort. It becomes reactive effort. If we can find in ourselves a grace, the ease, the wisdom to, to be able to see and to be able to soften and to be able to a little bit step out of this identification, we may in that moment be able to meet pain, be able to meet distress with effort and effortlessness. The effort to engage, to be intimate with what is, and yet the freedom from agendas, the freedom from demands, the freedom from the insistence about what needs to happen in relationship to that pain. The effortlessness, it has this quality within effort of ease, of spaciousness, of compassion, of compassion for the pain that is met. So how do we bring this quality, these two together? Effortlessness effortlessness certainly does not suggest a kind of inertia or passivity. What it really suggests is the absence of any investment of self and self-consciousness in effort. What it really suggests, this quality of effortlessness within effort, is a surrender of any demand of outcome. There needs to be no particular outcome. It suggests the willingness and the capacity to be wholeheartedly present with what is and yet not identified with what is. In a way, this quality of ease and spaciousness in my mind is to surrender a future. To surrender a future, how things must be in the next moment, what kind of outcome must come. We may really love to hear the phrases, nowhere to go, nothing to do, but can we equally love the phrase that nothing has to go? That nothing has to go. Nothing has to be annihilated in order for us to be peaceful, compassionate, happy. Nothing has to be annihilated, not the difficult person, not the pain, not the broken heart, not the broken heart. None of these things have to be annihilated. The mantra of mindfulness, if there is such a thing, the mantra of mindfulness is this too, this too, this also, 
for us to know the profound freedom of heart, which is really in many ways a freedom from self-consciousness, we actually need to be conscious of how this sense of selfing is both shaped by, is shaped by what is clung to, but also governed by what is clung to. So the sense of selfing arising and clinging is not separated from the object which is clung to. You see that? You know, if anger is clung to, the selfing is shaped by what is clung to, also governed by it. So everything that is born of that action, effort, is also colored by that shaping. It's a closed feedback loop. We are asked to make a lot of room for things in this practice, room for the aching back, room for the difficult memory, to make room for all things. The verse goes on to say, the deeds are, but no doer of the deeds is there. Well, in this life, we cannot not act. We are always acting. We are always making choices in this life. Our actions, like anything else, can be laden with self-consciousness. How do we experience this? When our actions are laden with self-consciousness, we might find ourselves seeking and hoarding praise. You know, you're doing good. You know, We might equally in that also find ourselves seeking and hoarding blame. You know, you didn't do so well. We think in terms only of success and failure, regret and shame expecting certain results from our actions. When we are established in the role of the doer, this is like opening the door to doubt, to uncertainty, to self-judgment, to striving, that can shadow so much of what we do. The Buddha didn't just speak about um, effort. He spoke about wise effort in all things. What is wise effort rooted in? Wise intention. What is wise intention in all things? The Buddha actually got fairly simple around this. You know, the intentions of kindness, the intentions of compassion, the intentions of letting go, actions that are guided by integrity. In a way, effort, the acts that are born of this and the effort of in that really brings a path and goal together helps us to see the emptiness of self rather than reinforcing ourself. When we can, when our actions are rooted in wise intention and not self-consciousness, we find joy in our actions, and that deepens joy. Efforts guided by kindness deepen kindness. Effort guided by compassion deepens compassion. It's a wonderful saying in one of the Tibetan texts. It says, in this mountain cave, this hermitage, All I do is good. The mountain cave is not some Himalayan location. The mountain cave, the hermitage, is actually the hermitage that we create within our hearts of ethics, of kindness, of compassion, of renunciation. It's so interesting in this practice to have this sense of purpose and in a way, a genuine sense of purposelessness. In the sense that we know there's a path, but we don't know the outcomes. 
You know, when you walk, when you sit, this is not so linear, you know, that I sit and I get three brownie points, you know, and two steps closer to calmness, you know, and, you know, and I do four walk-ins, you know, and I'm pretty sure to have good dreams tonight and, you know, tomorrow wise action, you know. It's not linear like that. You know, in many ways, we do not know how things come to fruition. We just simply do not know. We do not know the time of insights ripening and maturing, where we have a tremendous sense of purpose, and yet we don't have that fixation on this is what must be produced. We know how when our actions, when they're dedicated to the end of suffering, those actions will serve to liberate the moment. And that's what we're concerned with in this path, is liberating the moment, because this is, to awaken the moment, because this is actually the only moment we can awaken. We cannot awaken tomorrow's moment. We cannot awaken next week's moment. We can only awaken and liberate the moment we are in. The territory of self-consciousness is something very different. It becomes very preoccupied with measuring, with results, measuring ourselves by results, insistence on all things. Nagarjuna, in one translation, he says this wonderful thing. He says, when I no longer insist on being someone, I am free to be no one. When I no longer insist on being someone, I am free to be no one. Dogen put it, he said, I, came to, I come to realize clearly that mind is no other than mountains, rivers, and the great wide earth, the sun and the moon and the stars. Learning to liberate the moment. The verse goes on to say, The path is, but no traveler on it is seen. Now, clearly, we have a path here. You know, we've spent endless hours talking about it. You know, we give endless instructions. Clearly, we have a path. But where does that path begin? Very simple places. Ethics, calmness, clarity. The awareness that the suffering and the distress in life awaits our response whether it is a suffering in our own life or the suffering in the world, whether it's the disquiet we feel running through us or the great injustices in life. We know that this path is the awareness that there is distress and suffering and it awaits our response. There is also an end to this path. It's very important to recognize that the third ennobling truth, the ending, the fading away of sorrow and struggle, an unbounded awakening. It is the point of everything we do here. It is the point of everything we do. It is a path, we see it here moment to moment, of cultivating the lovely, cultivating our own capacities for a very profound spaciousness and understanding and aliveness and sensitivity and compassion and letting go of what obstructs 
that our, our capacity. Learning to let go, to release the tendencies of fear and ill will and obsession and dullness and discontent. This is the work of the moment. This is the work of the moment. Because we see what obstructs our capacity to realize the lovely, of course, that all of these qualities of fear and anxiety and resistance, these are the children of self-consciousness. Happens in our life so easily transferred to our path. We talk about my practice. We talk about my progress. In many ways, We become the meditator, which is actually, if not seen clearly and wisely, can actually cause as much suffering as anything else in our lives that is identified with. Truly, in this practice, we are actually learning to get ourselves out of the way, to be able to sit without forgetting that it's me sitting to be able to breathe without occupying the seat of the breather, to be able to walk without being the walker, going anywhere at all. And then we begin to taste a little bit of grace, a little bit of ease in all moments. The beginning of the path and the fruition of the path can be brought together in one single moment. In wisdom, the path and the fruition of seeing suffering, the causes of suffering, and the end of suffering can be realized in a single moment. A single sound, a single moment of thought, a deeply rooted sadness, an aching back, all of this can be the ground of awakening. All of this can be the ground of self-consciousness. No matter how deep or how fleeting all of these phenomena appear in our consciousness, they appear in a state of potentiality. That single sound, that distress, that sadness. Here there can be clinging, identification, holding, resistance, familiar territory of self and self-consciousness. Here too, There can be relaxing, allowing, investigation, awakening into, to see the arising and passing with curiosity and spaciousness. We see how much the arising of self-consciousness is always highlighting the other, the object, separate and apart. And this is something to be investigated. Because when we make the other, we invest it with the power to make us happy or unhappy. So our self-consciousness in that moment becomes tied to the other, tied to the sound, tied, tied to the thought, the memory, the feeling. We say, I am sad. I am fearful. I am inadequate. And this tie is born and created moment to moment. And so it is released moment to moment. I mean, some of you have heard this say me say this before, but I can quite happily say that I have never let go of a single thing in my entire life. Try it. Shout at yourself to let go. Try commanding yourself to let go. Try exhorting yourself to let go. See how successful you are. 
I can also quite happily say that I have, ne- I have never grasped hold of anything in this entire life. That's the good news. I have never clung to anything in my entire life. There's a real question here. I mean, I tried, that, tried this shouting at myself for a long time, actually, before I really began to question who is letting go and who is grasping. What is this inflated sense of centrality that seems to hold all this power, me, to let go, me to grasp? What is this inflated sense of autonomy that I believe myself to have, that I hold dominion over all phenomena and that I am either going to grasp hold of them or I am going to let go of them, like I'm the ringmaster in the circus, you know, commanding the whole performance, you know, conducting the orchestra. Isn't this a rather, rather kind of spiritually sophisticated sense of self and self-consciousness? It's really good to question this. How possible it is, how impossible it is to separate the selfing from the actuality and the process of grasping. How these are really interchangeable, selfing and clinging are really two words for the same process. It's not like there's this little being inside me, you know somehow deciding to cling, deciding to grasp, deciding to let go. You know, this is a kind of nonsense in my experience, kind of my understanding. Hmm? To see that the process of self and the process of clinging are all part of one cloth, they're all part of one fabric, they're not two separate activities. They are one activity. They are one process. I will never be enlightened. I tried that one true. That's another kind of spiritual, sophisticated little bit of grasping, isn't it? I'm going to be enlightened. It doesn't mean to sit and walk and live in some sort of deluded way, hoping that awakening is going to come knocking. What is effort in the service of? What's in the service of awakening? Wise effort. It's in the service of liberation. There is agency within wise effort. We're cultivating all the qualities, all the conditions that incline our hearts and minds towards release. We're cultivating all the conditions, moment to moment, that incline our hearts towards awakening and understanding, towards its own letting go. We cultivate and nurture the lovely, the calmness, the freedom, The balance, the care, the mindfulness, these are the conditions of letting go. Just like the conditions of clinging are confusion and heedlessness and agitation and resistance and fear, these are the conditions of clinging. The conditions of relinquishing are what we cultivate in this path. So in the practice, we're cultivating the inner qualities, the inner conditioning in which letting go or relinquishment occurs. This happens within consciousness. This happens within our own practice. In the light of these conditions, releasing and letting go happens. I would like you to check this out in your own experience, please. 
You know, you have probably seen moments when you feel very agitated, very distressed during this retreat, very contracted, very tight, and a difficult memory or a difficult thought arises. Oh, and you can feel the contractedness happen and the clinging, the identification. You will have another moment in your practice, sitting or walking, where you, there's been you know, a greater cultivation of calmness and spaciousness. Exactly the same thought will arise, and it doesn't stick. All that has changed, the thought, the memory, is the same. All that has changed is the climate, the conditions in which it is arising. So think of this as the practice to cultivate the conditions in which relinquishment happens. We are cultivating the non-holding heart the non-clinging mind. We're cultivating everything, uh, uh, that image. Everything matters. It's not that things don't matter. You know, life comes and goes, and it matters. Thoughts, memories, feelings, they come and they go, and they truly matter. They are asking for our understanding, for our undivided attention. Selfing comes and goes, and it surely matters. We're asked not to get rid of suffering, but to understand suffering, to understand the conditions for distress, to understand what brings suffering to an end. We are not in charge of this. We are also not helpless. This path and its fruition is not a nurturing of self-consciousness. It's not a getting rid of anything. It's nurturing the clarity of heart that allows us to be conscious and aware of selfing and clinging because this is the opposite of awakening. Listening and responsive, we cultivate a spaciousness which is free from insistence free from demands, learning moment to moment to get out of our way. Self-consciousness is not a problem to solve. It's a process to understand. There's a wonderful line in the Dhammapada where it says, all that we are now is a result of all that we were. And all that we will be tomorrow or even in the next moment will be the result of all that we are now. Lao Tzu, I just want to end with a small quote by Lao Tzu. It says, A good traveler has no fixed plan and is not intent on arriving. A good artist lets their intuition lead them wherever it wants. A good scientist has freed themselves of concepts and keeps their mind open to what is. We have just a moment quietly together. Thank you.
it's time now is a walking period and then we'll come back again for the last sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.